Chapter 4, Part 2 of A Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Campaign of 1778, Part 2. By this time, the British had come in contact with the New England forces at the fence when a sharp conflict ensued. These troops maintained their ground till the whole forces of the enemy that could be brought to bear had charged upon them through the fence and after being overpowered by numbers, and the platoon officers had given orders for their several platoons to leave the fence, they had to force them to retreat, so eager were they to be revenged on the invaders of their country and rights. As soon as the troops had left this ground, the British planted their cannon upon the place, and began a violent attack upon the artillery and our detachment, but neither could be routed. The cannonade continued for some time without intermission, when the British pieces, being mostly disabled, they reluctantly crawled back from the height which they had occupied, and hid themselves from our sight. Before the cannonade had commenced, a part of the right wing of the British army had advanced across a low meadow and brook, and occupied an orchard on our left. The weather was almost too hot to live in, and the British troops in the orchard were forced by the heat to shelter themselves from it under the trees. We had a four-pounder on the left of our pieces which kept a constant fire upon the enemy during the whole contest. After the British artillery had fallen back, and the cannonade had mostly ceased in this quarter, and our detachment had an opportunity to look about us, Colonel Silly of the New Hampshire line, who was attached to our detachment, passed along in front of our line, inquiring for General Varnum's men, who were the Connecticut and Rhode Island men belonging to our command. We answered, Here we are. He did not hear us in his hurry, but passed on. In a few minutes he returned, making the same inquiry. We again answered, Here we are. Ah, said he, you are the boys I want to assist in driving those rascals from yon orchard. We were immediately ordered from our old detachment and joined another, the whole composing a corps of about five hundred men. We instantly marched towards the enemy's right wing, which was in the orchard, and kept concealed from them as long as possible by keeping behind the bushes. When we could no longer keep ourselves concealed, we marched into the open fields and formed our line. The British immediately formed and began to retreat to the main body of their army. Colonel Selly, finding that we were not likely to overtake the enemy before they reached the main body of the army, on account of the fences and other obstructions, ordered three or four platoons from the right of our corps to pursue and attack them and thus keep them in play till the rest of the detachment could come up. I was in this party. We pursued without order. As I passed through the orchard, I saw a number of the enemy lying under the trees, killed by our field piece mentioned before. We overtook the enemy just as they were entering upon the meadow, which was rather bushy. When within about five rods of the rear of the retreating foe, I could distinguish everything about them. They were retreating in line, though in some disorder. I singled out a man and took my aim directly between his shoulders. They were divested of their packs. He was a good mark, being a broad-shouldered fellow. What became of him I know not. The fire and smoke hid him from my sight. One thing I know, that is, I took deliberate aim at him as ever I did at any game in my life. But after all, I hope I did not kill him, although I intended to at the time. By this time our whole party had arrived, and the British had obtained a position that suited them, as I suppose, for they returned our fire in good earnest, and we played the second part of the same tune. They occupied a much higher piece of ground than we did, and had a small piece of artillery, which the soldiers called a grasshopper. 
we had no artillery with us. The first shot they gave us from this piece cut off the thigh bone of a captain just above the knee and the whole heel of a private in the rear of him. We gave it to poor Sonny, for they were Scotch troops, so hot that he was forced to fall back and leave the ground they occupied. When our commander saw them retreating and nearly joined with their main body, he shouted, Come, my boys, reload your pieces, and we will give them a set-off. We did so, and gave them a parting salute, and the firing on both sides ceased. We then laid ourselves down under the fences and bushes to take breath, for we had need of it. I presume every one has heard of the heat of that day, but none can realize it that did not feel it. Fighting is hot work in cool weather, how much more so in such weather as it was on the 28th of June, 1778. After the action in our part of the army had ceased, I went to a well a few rods off to get some water. Here I found the wounded captain, mentioned before, lying on the ground and begging his sergeant, who pretended to have the care of him, to help him off the field, or he should bleed to death. The sergeant and a man or two he had with him were taken up hunting after plunder. It grieved me to see the poor man in such distress, and I asked the sergeant why he did not carry his officer to the surgeon's. He said he would directly. Directly, said I. Why, he will die directly. I then offered to assist them in carrying him to a meeting-house a short distance off where the rest of the wounded men and the surgeons were. At length he condescended to be persuaded to carry him off. I helped him to the place, and tarried a few minutes, to see the wounded and two or three limbs amputated and then returned to my party again, where we remained the rest of the day and the following night, expecting to have another hack at them in the morning, but they gave us the slip. As soon as our party had ceased firing, it began in the center, and then upon the right, but as I was not in that part of the army, I had no adventure in it. But the firing was continued in one part or the other of the field the whole afternoon. Our troops remained on the field all night with the commander-in-chief, a regiment of Connecticut forces were sent to lie as near the enemy as possible, and to watch their motions. But they disappointed us all. If my readers wish to know how they escaped so slyly without our knowledge, after such precautions being used to prevent it, I must tell them I know nothing about it. But if they will take the trouble to call upon John Trumbull, Esquire, perhaps he will satisfy their curiosity. If he should chance to be out of the way, and ten chances to one if he is not, Apply to McFingal, Canto Fourth. One little incident happened during the heat of the cannonade, which I was eye-witness to, and which I think would be unpardonable not to mention. A woman whose husband belonged to the artillery, and who was then attached to a piece in the engagement, attended with her husband at the piece the whole time, while in the act of reaching a cartridge, and having one of her feet as far before the other as she could step, a cannon-shot from the enemy passed directly between her legs, without doing any other damage than carrying away all the lower part of her petticoat. Looking at it with apparent unconcern, she observed that it was lucky it did not pass a little higher, for in that case it might have carried away something else, and ended her and her occupation. The next day after the battle each man received a gill of rum, but nothing to eat. We then joined our regiments in the line and marched for Hudson's River. We marched by what was called easy marches. That is, we struck our tents at three o'clock in the morning, marched ten miles, and then encamped, which would be about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Every third day we rested all day. In this way we went to King's Ferry, where we crossed the Hudson. Each brigade furnished its own ferryman to carry the troops across. 
I was one of the men from our brigade. We were still suffering for provisions. Nearly the last trip the bateau that I was in made, while crossing the river empty, a large sturgeon, a fish in which this river abounds, seven or eight feet in length, in his gambolings, sprang directly into the boat, without doing any other damage than breaking down one of the seats of the boat. We crossed and took in our freight and recrossed, landed the men and our prize, gave orders to our several messmates as to the disposal of it, and proceeded on our business till the whole of the brigade had crossed the river, which was not long. We were working with new energy in expectation of having something to eat when we had done our job. We then repaired to our messes to partake of the bounty of Providence, which we had so unexpectedly received. I found my share, which was about the seventh part of it, cooked, that is, it was boiled in salt and water, and I fell to it and ate, perhaps a pound and a half, for I well remember that I was as hungry as a vulture and as empty as a blown bladder. Many of the poor fellows thought us happy in being thus supplied. For my part, I felt happy. From King's Ferry the army proceeded to Terrytown, and from thence to the White Plains. Here we drew some small supplies of summer clothing, of which we stood in great need. While we were here, I, with some of my comrades who were in the Battle of the White Plains in the year 76, one day took a ramble on the ground where we were then engaged with the British and took a survey of the place. We saw a number of the graves of those who fell in that battle. Some of the bodies had been so slightly buried that the dogs or hogs or both had dug them out of the ground. The skulls and other bones and hair were scattered about the place. Here were Hessian skulls as thick as a bombshell. Poor fellows! They were left unburied in a foreign land. They had, perhaps, as near and dear friends to lament their sad destiny as the Americans who lay buried near them. But they should have kept at home. We should then never have gone after them to kill them in their own country. But, the reader will say, they were forced to come and be killed here, forced by their rulers who have absolute power of life and death over their subjects. Well then, reader, bless a kind providence that has made such a distinction between your condition and theirs. And be careful, too, that you do not allow yourself ever to be brought to such an abject, servile, and debased condition. We lay at the White Plains some time. While here I was transferred to the light infantry, when I was immediately marched down to the lines. I had hard duty to perform during the remainder of the campaign. I shall not go into every particular, but only mention a few incidents and accidents which transpired. There were three regiments of light infantry, composed of men from the whole main army. It was a motley group, Yankees, Irishmen, Buckskins, and what not. The regiment that I belonged to was made up of about one-half New Englanders, and the remainder were chiefly Pennsylvanians. Two sets of people, as opposite in manners and customs as light and darkness. Consequently, there was not much cordiality subsisting between us. For, to tell the sober truth, I had in those days, as like have been incorporated with a tribe of western Indians as with any of the southern troops, especially of those which consisted mostly, as the Pennsylvanians did, of foreigners. But I was among them, and in the same regiment too, and under their officers. But the officers in general were gentlemen, and had to do duty with them. To make a bad matter worse, I was often, when on duty, the only Yankee that happened to be on the same tour for several days together. The bloody Yankee, or the damned Yankee, was the mildest epithets that they would bestow upon me at such times. It often made me think of home, 
or at least of my regiment of fellow Yankees. Our regiment was commanded by a Colonel Butler, a Pennsylvanian, the same, I believe, who was afterwards General Butler, and was slain by the Indians at the defeat of General St. Clair at the Miamis, but of this I was not certain. He was a brave officer, but a fiery, austere hothead. Whenever he had a dispute with a brother officer, and that was pretty often, he would never resort to pistols and swords, but always to his fists. I have more than once or twice seen him with a black eye, and have seen other officers that he had honored with the same badge. As I have said before, I shall not be very minute in relating my adventures during my continuance in this service. The duty of the light infantry is the hardest while in the field of any troops in the army, if there is any hardest about it. During the time the army keeps the field, they are always on the lines near the enemy, and consequently always on the alert, constantly on the watch. Marching and guard-keeping, with all the other duties of troops in the field, fall plentifully to their share. There is never any great danger of light infantrymen dying of the scurvy. We had not been long on the lines when our regiment was sent off, lower down towards the enemy, upon a scouting expedition. We marched all night. Just at day-dawn we halted in a field and concealed ourselves in some bushes. We placed our sentinels near the road, lying down behind bushes, rocks, and stone heaps. The officers had got wind of a party of the enemy that was near us. A detachment of cavalry, which accompanied us, had taken the same precaution to prevent being discovered that the infantry had. We had not been long in our present situation before we discovered a party of Hessian horsemen advancing up the road, directly to where we were lying in ambush for them. When the front of them had arrived within hail, our colonel rose up from his lurking place and very civilly ordered them to come to him. The party immediately halted, and as they saw but one man of us, the commander seemed to hesitate, and concluded, I suppose, not to be in too much of a hurry in obeying our colonel's command, but that it was the best way for him to retrace his steps. Our colonel then, in a voice like thunder, called out to him, "'Come here, you rascal!' But he paid very little attention to the colonel's summons, and began to endeavor to free himself from what, I suppose, he thought a bad neighborhood upon which our colonel ordered the whole regiment to rise from their ambush and fire upon them. The order was quickly obeyed, and served to quicken their steps considerably. Our horsemen had, while these transactions were in progress, by going round behind a small wood, got into their rear. We followed the enemy hard up, and when they met our horsemen there was a trifle of clashing. A part forced themselves past our cavalry, and escaped. About thirty were taken, and a number killed. We had none killed, and but two or three of the horsemen slightly wounded. The enemy were armed with short rifles. There was an Irishman belonging to our infantry who, after the affray was over, seeing a wounded man belonging to the enemy lying in the road and unable to help himself, took pity on him, as he was in danger of being trodden upon by the horses, and having shouldered him was staggering off with his load in order to get him to a place of more safety. While crossing a small worn-out bridge over a very muddy brook, he happened to jostle the poor fellow more than usual, who cried out, Good rebel, don't hurt poor Hushman. Who do you call a rebel, you scoundrel? said the Irishman, and tossed him off his shoulders as unceremoniously as though he had been a log of wood. He fell with his head into the mud, and as I passed I saw him struggling for life, but I had other business on my hands than to stop to assist him. I did sincerely pity the poor mortal, but pity him was all I could do then. What became of him after I saw him in the mud I never knew, 
Most likely he there made his final exit. The infantry marched off with the prisoners, and left the horsemen to keep the field, till we were out of danger with our prize. Consequently, I never heard anything more of him. But the Irishmen reminded me that the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Soon after this I had another fatiguing job to perform. There was a militia officer, a colonel, his name I have forgotten, though I think it was Jones, who had collected some stores of flour, pork, etc., for the use of the militia in his neighborhood, when any small parties of them were required for actual service. A party of the enemy, denominated cowboys, refugees, had destroyed his stores. He solicited some men from the light infantry to endeavor to capture some of the gang whom he was personally acquainted with, who belonged to, or were often at Westchester, a village near King's Bridge. Accordingly, a captain and two subaltern officers, and about eighty men, of which I was one, was sent from our regiment, then lying at a village called Bedford, to his assistance. We marched from our camp in the dusk of the evening, and continued our march all night. We heard repeatedly, during the night, the Tories firing on our sentries that belonged to the horse guards who were stationed on the lines near the enemy. This was often practiced by those villains, not only upon the cavalry, but the infantry also, when they thought they could do it with impunity. We arrived at the colonel's early in the morning, and stayed there through the day. At night the lieutenant of our detachment, with a small party of our men, guided by two or three militia officers, were sent off in pursuit of some of those shooting gentry whom the colonel suspected. We first went to a house, where were a couple of free blacks who were strongly suspected of being of the number. The people of the house denied having any knowledge of such persons, but some of the men, inquiring of a small boy belonging to the house, he very innocently told us that there were such men there, and that they lay in a loft over the hogsty. We soon found their nest, but the birds had flown. Upon further inquiry, however, we found their skulking place and took them both. We then proceeded to another house, a mile or two distant. Here we could not get any intelligence of the vermin we were in pursuit of. We, however, searched the house but found none. But we, the soldiers, desired the man who attended us with a light to show us into the dairy house, pretending that the suspected persons might be there, and he accordingly accompanied us there. We found no enemy in this place, but we found a friend indeed, because a friend in need. Here was a plenty of good bread, milk, and butter. We were as hungry as Indians, and immediately fell to and spared not, while the man of the house held the candle and looked at us as we were devouring his eatables. I could not see his heart, and of course could not tell what sort of thoughts harbored there, but I could see his face, and that indicated pretty distinctly what passed in his mind. He said nothing, but I believe he had his life his bread and butter had been arsenic as what it was. We cared little for his thoughts or his maledictions. They did not do us half so much hurt as his victuals did us good. We then returned to our party at the colonel's, where we arrived before daybreak. We stayed here through the day, drew some pork and biscuit, and prepared for our expedition after the cowboys. At dark we sat off, accompanied by the militia colonel and three or four subaltern militia officers. This was the third night I had been on my feet, the whole time without any sleep, but go we must. We marched but a short way in the road, and then turned into the fields and pastures, over brooks and fence, through swamps, mire and woods, endeavoring to keep as clear of the inhabitants as possible. About midnight we crossed a road near a house, the inmates of which I suppose were friendly to our cause, 
as the officers ordered us to stand still and not to speak nor leave our places on any account whatever while they all entered the house for a few minutes upon what errand i know not as soon as the officers joined us again we marched off one of our sergeants having disobeyed orders and gone round to the back side of the house unobserved by the rest of us it being quite dark upon some occasion best known to himself we marched off and left him we had not gone fifty rods before he returned to the place where we were standing when he left us and not finding us there he hallowed like a brave fellow but the militia officers said that it would not do to answer so we marched on and left him to find the way to camp through what might with propriety be called an enemy's country as well as he could he however arrived there with some considerable difficulty safe and sound we kept on still through the fields avoiding the houses as much as possible i shall never forget how tired and beat out i was every grove of trees or piece of woods i could discern i hoped would prove a resting place but there was no rest about two o'clock we took to the high road when we were between the village of westchester and king's bridge we then came back to the village where we were separated into small divisions each led by an officer either of our own or of the militia and immediately entered all the suspected houses at once what we had to do must be done quickly as the enemy were so near that they might have been informed of us in less than half an hour there were several men in the house into which i was led but one only appeared to be obnoxious to the officer who led us this man was a tory refugee in green uniform we immediately secured him an old man as blind as a bat came out of a bedroom who appeared to be in great distress for fear there would be murder committed as he termed it i told him it was impossible to commit murder with refugees we directly left the house with our prisoner and joined the other parties and hurried off with all possible speed when we got away and daylight appeared we found that we had twelve or fourteen prisoners the most or all of whom had been concerned in the destruction of the colonel's stores we did not suffer the grass to grow long under our feet until we considered ourselves safe from the enemy that we had left behind us we then slackened our pace and took to the road where it was easier getting along than in the fields oh i was so tired and hungry when we arrived at the colonel's which was not till sundown or after the most of the fellows we had taken belonged in the neighborhood of this place as we passed a house just at night there stood in the door an elderly woman who seen among the prisoners some that she knew she began to open her batteries of blackguardism upon us for disturbing what she termed the king's peaceable subjects upon a little closer inspection who should her ladyship spy amongst the herd but one of her own sons her resentment was then raised to the highest pitch and we had a drenching shower of imprecations let down upon our heads hell for war said she why you have got my son josie too poor old simpleton she might as well have saved her breath to cool her porridge we here procured another day's rations of the good colonel's pork and bread we stayed through the night and got some sleep and rest early next morning we left our prisoners blacks and all to the care of the militia who could take care of them after we had taken them for them and marched off for our encampment at balford where we arrived at night sufficiently beat out and in good condition to add another night's sleep to our stock of rest we lay at bedford till the close of the season late in the autumn the main army lay at new milford in the northwestern part of connecticut while there the connecticut troops drew some winter clothing the men belonging to that state who were in the light infantry had none sent them they therefore thought themselves hardly dealt by 
Many of them, fearing they should lose their share of clothing, of which they stood in great need, absconded from the camp at Bedford and went to New Milford. This caused our officers to keep patrolling parties around the camp during the night to prevent their going off. In consequence of this, I had one evening nearly obtained a final discharge from the army. I had been in the afternoon at a small brook in the rear of the camp, where the troops mostly got their water, to wash some clothes. Among the rest was a handkerchief, which I had laid upon a stone or stump, and when I went to my tent I forgot to take it with me. Missing it after roll call, I went to the place to get it. It was almost dark, and quite so in the bushes, when I got there. I was puzzled for some time to find the place, and longer before I could find the handkerchief. After finding it I did not hurry back, but loitered till the patrols were out, for I did not once think of them. It had now become quite dark, and I had to pass through a place where the soldiers had cut firewood. It was a young growth of wood, and the ground was covered with brush and the stumps about knee-high, quite thick. Just as I entered upon this spot I heard somebody challenge with, Who comes there? I had no idea of being the person hailed, and kept very orderly on my way, blundering through the brush. I, however, received a second and third invitation to declare myself, but paid no attention to the request. The next compliment I received was a shot from them. The ball passed very near to me, but I still kept advancing, when instantly I had another salute. I then thought that since I had been the cause of so much noise and alarm, it would be best for me to get off if possible for I knew that if I was brought before our hot spur of a colonel, I should buy the rabbit. Accordingly, I put my best foot foremost. The patrol, which consisted of twelve or fifteen men, all had a hack at me, some of the balls passing very near me indeed. One in particular passed so near my head as to cause my ear to ring for some time after. I now sprang to it for dear life, and I was in those days tolerable light of foot, but I had not made many leaps before I ran my knee with all my force against a white oak stump, which brought me up so short that I went heels over head over the stumps. I hardly knew whether I was dead or alive. However, I got up and blundered on till I reached my tent, into which I pitched, and lay as still as the pain in my knee would allow me. My messmates were all asleep and knew nothing of the affair then, nor did I ever let them or anyone else know of it till after the close of the campaign when I had joined my regiment in the line and was clear of the southern officers. But my knee was in a fine pickle. The next morning it was swelled as big as my head and lame enough. However, it did not long remain so. When I was questioned by the officers, or any of the men, how I came by my wound, I told them I fell down, and thus far I told the truth. But when anyone asked me how I came to fall down, I was compelled to equivocate a little. I had often heard of some of the low-bred Europeans, especially Irishmen, boxing with each other in good fellowship, as they termed it. But I could not believe it till I was convinced by actual demonstration. While we tarried here, I was one day at a sutler's tent, or hut, where were a number of what we Yankees called old countrymen. Soon after entering the hut, I observed one who was, to appearance, pretty well over the bay. Directly there came in another who, it appeared, was an old acquaintance of the former's. They seemed exceedingly glad to see each other, and so must take a drop of the crateur together. They then entered into conversation about former times. The first mentioned was a stout athletic fellow, the other was a much smaller man. All of a sudden the first says, Faith, Jimmy, will you take a box? Aye, and thank ye, too, replied the other. No sooner said than done, 
Out they went, and all followed to see the sport, as they thought it, I suppose. It was a cold, frosty day in the month of December. The ground all around the place was ploughed and frozen as hard as pavement. They immediately stripped to the buff, and a broad ring was directly formed for the combatants, and they needed a broad one, when they prepared for the battle. The first pass they made at each other, their arms drawing their bodies forward, they passed without even touching either. The first that picked them up was the frozen ground, which made the claret, as they called the blood, flow plentifully. They, however, with considerable difficulty, put themselves into a position for a second bout, when they made the same pass by as at the first. The little fellow, after getting upon his feet again, as well as he could, cried out, I am too drunk to fight, and crawled off as fast as he was able to the sutler's hut again. The other followed, both as bloody as butchers, to drink friends again, where no friendship had been lost. And there I left them and went to my tent, thankful that Yankees, with all their follies, lacked such a refined folly as this. The main army, about this time, quitted the eastern side of the Hudson River and passed into New Jersey, to winter quarters. The Connecticut and New Hampshire troops went to Reading and Danbury in the western part of Connecticut. The light infantry, likewise, broke up their encampment at Bedford and separated to join their respective regiments in the line. On our march to join our regiment, some of our gentlemen officers, happening to stop at a tavern, or rather a sort of grog-shop, took such a seasoning that two or three of them became quite frisky, as the old Indian said of his young squaw. They kept running and chasing each other backward and forward by the troops, as they walked along the road, acting ridiculously. They soon, however, broke up the sport, for two of them at last got by the ears, to the no small diversion of the soldiers, for nothing could please them better than to see the officers quarrel amongst themselves. One of the officers used his sword in the scabbard, the other a cane, and as the song says, at every stroke their jackets did smoke, as though they had been all on fire. Some of the other officers, who had not dipped their bills quite so deep, parted them, at the same time representing to them the ridiculous situation they stood in, fighting like blackguards in sight of the soldiers. At length, shame, so far as they had reason to let it operate, beginning to take hold of them, the other officers persuaded them to shake hands in token of future friendship, but they carried wonderful long faces all the rest of the day. We arrived at Reading about Christmas or a little before, and prepared to build huts for our winter quarters, and now came on the time again between grass and hay, that is, the winter campaign of starving. We had not long been here under the command of General Putnam, before the old gentleman heard, or fancied he heard, that a party of the enemy were out somewhere down below. We were alarmed about midnight, and as cold a night as need be, and marched off to find the enemy, if he could be found. We marched all the remaining part of the night, and all forenoon of the next day, and when we came where they were, they were not there at all, as the Irishman said. We now had nothing more to do but to return as we came, which we immediately set about. We marched back to Bedford near the encamping ground I had just left. We were conducted into our bedroom, a large wood, by our landlords, the officers, and left to our repose, while the officers stowed themselves away snugly in the houses of the village about half a mile distant. We struck us up fires and lay down to rest our weary bones, all but our jawbones. They had nothing to weary them. About midnight it began to rain, which soon put out all our fires, and by three or four o'clock it came down in torrents. 
There we were, but where our careful officers were, or what had become of them we knew not, nor did we much care. The men began to squib off their pieces in derision of the officers, supposing they were somewhere amongst us, and careless of our condition. But none of them appearing, the men began firing louder and louder, till they had brought it to almost a running fire. At the dawn the officers, having, I suppose, heard the firing, came running from their warm dry beds, almost out of breath, exclaiming, Poor fellows, are you not almost dead? We might have been for aught they knew or cared. However, they marched us off to the village, wet as drowned rats, put us into the houses, where we remained till the afternoon and dried ourselves. It cleared off towards night, and about sundown we marched again for camp, which was about twenty miles distant. We marched till some time in the evening, when we were ordered to get into the houses, under the care of the non-commissioned officers, the commissioned officers having again taken care of themselves at an early hour of the night. Myself and ten or fifteen others of our company, being under the charge of our orderly sergeant, could not get any quarters, as the people at every house made some excuse, which he thought all true. We kept pushing on till we had got three or four miles in advance of the troops. We then concluded to try for lodgings no longer, but to make the best of our way to camp, which we did, and arrived there in the latter part of the night. I had nothing to do but to endeavor to get a little rest, for I had no cooking, although I should have been very glad to have had it to do. The rest of the troops arrived in the course of the day, and at night, I think, we got a little something to eat, but if we did not, I know what I got by the jaunt, for I got a pleurisy which laid me up for some time. When I got so well as to work, I assisted in building our winter huts. We got them in such a state of readiness that we moved into them about New Year's Day. The reader may take my word if he pleases, when I tell him we had nothing extraordinary, either of eatables or drinkables, to keep a new year or house warming. And as I have got into winter quarters again, I will here bring my third campaign to a close. End of chapter 4, part 2